Welcome back for Season 2 of The Art of Inquiry. I'm your host, James Treeweek, and today is the launch of Season 2, the first episode of Season 2, but we'll call it Episode 10 to keep continuity throughout the whole podcast. Uh, Things are going to look a little bit different with the podcast moving forward. We're going to be doing more episodes with the same guests, but over a shorter amount of time so that the content is more bite-sized and enables us to go deeper over a journey of a few weeks rather than hitting it all at once, hoping you got it all, and leaving it at that. There's a few other exciting things that have been happening behind the scenes. My my family is, is one thing that has happened. My wife and I have had a baby, which is great. Her name's Florence, and she is a, well, she's a baby and doing all the baby things she's meant to do. Another new thing with the podcast is that we have got merch that is about to be released. Uh, We've been working behind the scenes on a website and been designing some merch that you will be able to buy if you want to support the show. Uh, We've tried really hard to make it merch that looks nice rather than merch that looks like merch. Uh, So keep your eyes peeled for that. Probably next week with the next episode, we'll launch that website as well. Anyway, in this episode, we sit down with Diff Crowther, a crowd favorite from the last season, and we're talking in depth about Shakespeare and the humours. I hope you enjoy. Welcome back. This is our first episode of Season 2, and we've got joining with us one of the crowd favourites from Season 1, Diff Crowther. So welcome back, Diff. Hey, James. How you going? Yeah, good, good. Today, we're going to be talking about Shakespeare, which we kind of touched on in our episode. I believe it's episode two of The Art of Inquiry, uh, Mm -hmm. Why We Should Read Good Literature. And we kind of talked a little bit about Shakespeare there, but that was more broad encompassing of why we read literature, what's the point of English and education. Uh, And a lot of people wanted to hear more about Shakespeare. So I thought, hey, let's crack off season two. Who would want to hear more about Shakespeare? And the, the seeming sarcasm in that voice is what we're going to change the opinion of. Yeah, good. Uh, so, yeah, let's get into it. Today, uh, I just wanted to look at a topic that you're pretty passionate about, something that you've done a lot of research and writing on, uh, which is namely humor, humoralism and mm-hmm. uh, the way it is interacting in Shakespeare's plays, a few of his tragedies. So why don't you give us a, a quick, brief kind of uh, statement about what, what that really is? Sure, sure. Humoralism. Uh, I, I think most people would have at some point in time have done a personality test online or maybe as they were going through school or maybe in a place of employment, they've done personality tests. They can be kind of fun, right? And there's all sorts of different ones. There's the Myers-Briggs, you know, 16 personality types. There's Enneagram. One of the most basic ones and one that we kind of refer to a bit, I think, in kind of contemporary culture is there's four different personalities. So there's choleric, phlegmatic, melancholic, and sanguine. And these four personalities generally mean sort of a choleric person is kind of a bit of a go-getter, quite uh, intense, can be really a hard worker and often have a level of, it's perceived kind of like leadership. Choleric person might not be that easy to get along with. They could get angry easily, but there's a lot of kind of power and control in their personality. Melancholic person, well, it's probably the one that people are the most familiar with. The idea of melancholy is still with us today. We still hear this getting spoken about, and that's really a depressive state, sort of a sad, 
depression, a melancholic person would like Eeyore from, from Winnie the Pooh would be the best example uh, in contemporary <laughs> pop culture of melancholy. Then you've got uh, phlegmatic. Phlegmatic is really chilled out, um, not really uh, taking everything in your stride, just trying to have a good time all the time and a really dry sense of humor uh, and, and looking for humor and everything. And then the last one is uh, which is a sanguine and sanguine is uh, someone who's just full of life, someone who's really bubbly and excitable all the time and just wants to have what uh, wants to party. So maybe the difference between sanguine and phlegmatic is a phlegmatic person wants to have a good time, but they'll do it by being very laid back. Whereas a sanguine person wants to party. Now these four personality types actually have a history that goes all the way back to ancient Greece. We have a number of different philosophers, uh, but maybe the most prominent one being Hippocrates, who was obviously, uh, people might know, they might have heard of the Hippocratic Oath. And this is the oath that doctors take when they become a doctor uh, about doing no harm. And so Hippocrates kind of was one of these guys who um, started the medical field back in the day. He was kind of a doctor as well as being a philosopher. Those two things really crossed over a lot. Then there's another guy that came uh, who was a Roman philosopher and medical professional called Galen. And Galen really formalized the idea that Hippocrates and other people had kind of started, which is the theory of the humors. So these four personality types actually take their history from the theory of the humors. And the theory of the humors is that there are four main types of liquid that are coursing through our body all of the time. So this is back when people were kind of guessing at anatomy, right? You know, today, because we've been brought up in our uh, going through schools and watching TV and we've got the internet, we just kind of take it for granted what the inside of the body looks like and how it works. But the truth is that if you go back 2000 years, two and a half thousand years, people didn't really know what it all did and how it all worked. They had obviously cut open stuff, cut open beings, uh, cut open animals, cut open people and seen stuff, but that didn't mean that they knew how it all worked. And so there was a lot of guesswork. And one of the guesses is this thing that became known as known as a Galenic humoralism, that there's these four humors, these four liquids that are coursing through the body all the time and sickness or health is dependent upon them being in balance. So our four liquids are black bile, yellow bile, blood, and phlegm. And if you've got too much of any of those, then you start to get into the territory of becoming sick. And that sickness can be called one of those four personal personality types. Now, if you, if you have more of one, if one of them is predominant in you, but it's not going too far, then you might not actually get sick. It just determines your personality. So a sanguine personality person who's partying all the time, just wants to have a good time, really bubbly. Uh, they've got a lot of blood. They've got more blood than they've got of the other stuff. And that blood kind of is why, you know, the, uh, the, the ideal picture of a sanguine personality is someone who's drinking a lot. They've got a red face. They've got a red nose and they're just having a party all the time. And that's be literally one of the reasons is because the blood, there's so much blood coursing through them all the time that the blood is very close to the surface of their skin. Right. So, Blood is sanguine. Then you've got melancholic, which is black bile. And that's from the, uh, the I think it's the liver. Could be wrong there. Um, and then you've got yellow bile. And yellow bile is choleric. And then you've got phlegm. 
and phlegm is phlegmatic. And so each one of these different types of liquids coursing through the body is associated with the personality type. And if you had more of one than the other, then you would kind of be of that personality type. And it would be referred to as your humor. It was your humor. You know, it was the humoral disposition that you had was to be choleric or to be melancholic or whatever. Now that was long time ago. So Galen is 200 AD, but that theory persisted for a really long time. It went in and out of fashion, but it really came back big time. It got caught by Avicenna, an Islamic philosopher, and he worked it into his philosophy as well. And then when Avicenna's uh, philosophy kind of came back into Europe and with the, and that brought with it a reemergence of Aristotelian philosophy as well, then the humors came back in a big way. And in the Renaissance, sort of between 1400 and 1600, even getting into the end of uh, 1700, uh, the humors were a major way of thinking about understanding what is going on medically in a person. And not just medically, it gets into other things as well. So personality is there and also the idea of health and sickness. So that's a, that's a basic uh, encapsulation of the history of it and what it means. And yeah, interestingly, correct. like I say, it still exists today. Yeah, there's little remnants of it in the way that we talk about stuff today. When did um when did they kind of phase it out as a way of looking at people medically and as as a health and sickness? Because now I guess you, the way you've described it is it's really seen within the personality uh, side of things. When did it kind of shift out of the other way? Yeah, well, I think it, rather than saying that it shifted out of a medical way of thinking, it just started to become doubted through other scientific understanding. So people started to understand what the heart really did. So really the scientific revolution. Uh, and that's why it's over the course of the 17th and then into the 18th century that it kind of disappears. And you'd say by the mid 1700s, it's really not in vogue anymore. Uh, so over that, over the course of that sort of 150 years, uh, people start to understand more about the world, more about themselves, more about anatomy. And, and it's due to the scientific method and understanding things that people can start to really doubt the veracity of this approach. Right. Well, I mean, that makes sense. And obviously when we, when we look back on it from our perspective and our scientific worldview of things, it's almost uh, comical. The, you see, it, it's it's a something that is you know portrayed in a lot of uh, historical pieces as a, as a kind of thing that we wink at. Someone will say, "Oh, the doctor said I've got too much blood, and so I'm draining it right now. I've got to put yeah, some leeches." Yeah, that's the on. most that's the most common trope that you see if you if you're watching some sort of historical drama. It's like, "Oh, we've got to bleed them," you know, and and yeah. that that comes from the idea of having too much blood from from being sanguine, from being sick from it, or from having from needing to expel some of those. Uh, liquids that are inside the body but you're right it is it is treated as a little bit of a i don't know it's the it's the one old kind of medical joke and how many people died from losing blood when actually they needed blood and all that sort of stuff yeah yeah and and like there's this fair criticism there but what i what i was wanting to touch on and i think what we're going to get into is that obviously there wasn't uh 1600 years of just falsity it wasn't like this was pure fiction that Galen had come up with and everyone had just gone, yep, that's the way it is. And that's what ran with there. There seems to be uh, a current of truth within it in whatever way you want to take that perspective. Maybe you might say 
medically it's not as sound as current medical science but i think there's still a way that you can get to the truth behind it i think that's where we're going to get into with shakespeare so do you want to kind of maybe preface before we get into talking about the particulars of it how is it that that shakespeare actually helps us kind of look at the truth of these Mm. these humors yeah i mean maybe even before i get to shakespeare it's worth it's worth asking why is it worth looking at you know why is asking the way that people thought about medicine after it's been proven to be wrong why is that a valuable thing to do you know if it was four five hundred years ago who cares i think that one of the reasons that i was so interested in it is the more that i looked at it the more that i realized that just because this isn't factually accurate to medicine and to the current understanding the scientific understanding of the body doesn't mean like you're suggesting that there isn't something to it you can't have 1600 years of this being the method without there being something to it, right? It might not be hundred percent right, but there's got to be something to it. But not only that, what happened at around the time of the scientific revolution was a real focus on uh, the mind and understanding the mind. So we have Descartes, you know, uh, mm. sort of around 1620, 1630 doing his work and there's a moment in time where you start to have a dislocation, a separation between the mind and the body. What you can, what you can kind of uh, hear in the theory of the humors is that the mind and the body are very much connected. So your uh, personality, which a lot of people would say, well, what is that? What's your personality? It's kind of in the mind. It's kind of who you are. It's very much connected to your physicality, to these physical things that are going through you. Then you have, the Cartesian revolution, the, uh, the, 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 the split of mind and body. So Cartesian dualism, the idea that we're just a mind in a body, a, a ghost in a shell. And all of a sudden, we start thinking of the body as being very separate from who we are and what we are. And that resulted in different ways of thinking about stuff, right? So then you've got, so you've got Thomas Hobbes, who's you know, completely materialist in that sense. And that does shape in a helpful way, even though I think that there's some unhelpful things that come from it, that shapes people's capacity to be able to push forward with the scientific revolution and understand more about uh, the nature of the world and ourselves biologically, physically. And what, what then happens over a period of time is that I think that that separation between mind and body slowly starts to come back together again. Because we live in a time right now where let's say we identify melancholy with something like depression. And it is actually still uh, people. Melancholy is still a particular term that's used to describe certain forms of depression. And what is depression? Well, people are now at a point in time where they're realizing that depression is amongst other things, but this is a very important recent discovery. Depression is a result of inordinate amount of chemicals in our body. And now they might not be the humors that we used to think they were, but we are reconnecting the physical and the mental. The um, th- that dislocation that happened back then is becoming reconnecting. And so when I was looking into early modern uh, theories of medicine and the humors, I saw that actually what had happened over the next 500 years was we separated those two things. But it turns out that they were not only were they was there some truth in it. But maybe we threw out too much when we threw this theory out and we've, and we've slowly come back to realize that this kind of embodied soul nature of humanity is something that when we threw it out, we did a lot of damage to our understanding of ourselves, 
and we're just starting to get it back again. One of the big points that I may, uh, have made in my uh, writing on it and in my study is that early modern, and by early modern, I mean sort of between 15 and 1750, 1500, 1750, which is bang on Shakespeare, right? Shakespeare's writing uh, 1600. Mm. Um, at that point in time, they hadn't gone through this scientific revolution, this Cartesian separation process. And so their understanding of reality and their understanding of themselves as humans was far more complex. And in fact, we would call it contradictory because they believed things that we don't think can actually work together. They kind of, we, we kind of separate things out, whereas they saw everything as one confusing complex whole. And so that's why you can have this strange combination between what's happening in you physically, what's happening in you spiritually, what's happening in you mentally, all being one and the same thing. They don't divide these things up. And the real interesting, well, I think the real interesting although it's all interesting, but a real interesting part of it is the spiritual because back then they had a particularly pre-Reformation and then ongoing through the Reformation because the Catholics certainly didn't stop believing in this and Protestantism, it took quite a while for them to stop. They had the belief of demons interacting with, interfering with people. And so now you've got a third element coming in. You've got a person's free will, the things that they do, You've got a person's biology and the things that they do impact their biology, but they also, they just have a natural predisposition to their biology, to the humors in their body. And then now you've got this third thing, this possible spiritual interference from demons who can do stuff to your body, can do stuff to your humors to exacerbate your humors. And I can talk about that a little bit later on, but these three things combining in the world of Shakespeare is what I did my study on. Uh, and Shakespeare as a early modern writer, we read a whole bunch of what he has written and we read it through our lens and we read it through our understanding of things. And so when someone says melancholy in a Shakespearean play or whatever, if we don't have any understanding of what the early moderns thought about this stuff, we just read it as a form of depression or they're sad or whatever, without realizing that there are layers and layers of meaning that the early modern audience absolutely would have understood and that Shakespeare therefore would have intended because he was writing for that audience, not for us. And so there are so many layers within Shakespeare and humoralism gives us this really incredible insight as to not only what's going on in Shakespeare, but the way that people understood themselves in the early modern times. Yeah, that's great. I think, um, you know, someone just listening to that might've gotten lost a little bit in that, that rapid transition that we just did from, uh, you know, what are these personality things that used to be seen as medical to all of a sudden they've jumped from that to a worldview shift that happens in the space of, you know, around the scientific revolution and the enlightenment. Yeah. And it's, it's really important though, for the distinction to be clear in the fact that what happened is we went from a, a world, which as you said, was, was more complex because we hadn't defined these lines. We hadn't set parameters around things. We hadn't said the body is one thing, the mind is another, and the soul is something religion deals with. And those are kind of, if, if it exists at all, right? And so we, we kind of, we compartmentalize the way we understand the world. And that means, and I, I think we're kind of, there is a, there is a, at the moment, it's almost like science is catching back up to repair that, that material to 
what, what as you were saying to the mind and stuff i mean you look at the, the work of psychology and the way that it's interacting with with even the the medical um understanding of how stress and a stressed mind affects a body and the discussion of how uh certain attitudes that you have impact the way that your body processes certain things and so this i mean it's it's not necessarily the same connection that they had back then but you can start seeing that people are you know after maybe going too far on one side being uh we think draining blood is the way to heal people and going well well that's obviously that's wrong in some ways so let's go completely away from that and now there's actually no connection at all and it's just all the body we can see the heartbeats and that's that's life that's the sign of life Mm. and then now we're kind of repairing the two through and i'd probably say psychology is probably the way that we're seeing it the most common as you were talking about with depression as well in terms of if we're looking at from a scientific perspective that repairing and that uh rejoining is it's where it's most clear um but yeah i think it, it is clear just to know that that's the distinction we're talking about and then when now reading back looking at shakespeare and other works that were written before the scientific revolution uh it's almost a philological work it's your you're looking at how language has evolved you're looking at how yeah we see uh shakespeare describe hamlet as melancholic and we go ah hamlet's a little sad mm. And really what Shakespeare is implying there is something far deeper, something mm. far more tormented and not tormented just on an emotional level. We, we hear that as an emotional thing, but there's more physical stuff happening. There's more spiritual stuff happening there too. So I yeah, think that's so important. Yeah. One of the, to, to kind of highlight how physical it is, the, the body being distempered, being out of order uh, when it comes to the humours, is the kind of thing that can happen from little things, uh, from eating too much of a certain food or eating not enough of another food, of uh, having too much sex or not having enough sex. Uh, the physical things that we do uh, interact because, because the humors are physical and then they kind of start to change our not only our uh, emotions, not only our personality, but they actually can make us sick. And so there's ideas of what, what the kinds of things that we can do in order to improve ourselves are strange things. Uh, like I say, eating too much meat or, or eating more meat, uh, having sleep or sleeping at certain times of the day, all of these kinds of things. And I would, I would argue that they were definitely onto something, even though they might not have been hundred percent accurate. Like we more and more are recognizing that this kind of holistic understanding of, of who we are and, and, and how to achieve good health every little thing that we do, it's all connected. You can't disconnect it. So I would be a big advocate of, or one of the reasons I care about uh, looking at early modern culture is because they had this holistic understanding. They hadn't disconnected these things. And I don't think that we should disconnect these things. No, definitely. And also, I mean, it, it follows on from C.S. Lewis's The Reading of Old Books when he says, you know, it's good to read uh, books from an age that isn't your own because you can mm. see the contrast in what they have and they they have something to teach you as well as you have something to teach them, which means that you can reaffirm the good beliefs of your culture but also understand where your culture is going wrong. That mm. obviously requires um, discernment. It's not mm. like just read an old book and you'll know because it's not that at all, but that is definitely a part of it. Uh, well, look, we've got really 10 minutes left uh, to, I think, hint at how, this conversation can show up in Shakespeare. Sure. So I think that's the best. And then next week, I reckon what we'll do is we'll jump on and we'll sink our teeth in a little bit deeper into some of these topics. Mm. So 
give us a uh, a rundown of where we're going next week. <laughs> well, uh, in my study, I, I looked at three particular plays, which were uh, King Lear, Macbeth, and a little-known play by Shakespeare called Timon of Athens. In particular, I was actually looking for traces of a medieval sin called Acedia. And so everything that I was doing was kind of going through this uh, look, looking through this framework, looking for acedia. And really my argument was that acedia had transformed and had become melancholy uh, and it had kind of lost its, lost its way. It wasn't really spoken about anymore, but it had become melancholy and I was finding connections between those things. But the truth is in Shakespeare, particularly in those three plays, but it happens all the time. Uh, and, and in fact, in a, there are other plays not by Shakespeare, which are actually called comedy of humours. So Ben Johnson writing at the end of uh, the 1500s, 1590s, uh, wrote a play which is called Every Man in His Humour. And it's basically, it's a, it's a humoral comedy where everyone is of the kind of personality that you associate with those humours. So Shakespeare writes his plays and at different times he will talk about the humours that people are going through. King Lear, for example, starts the play and it is already referenced by one of his daughters that he is in a choleric mood. So he is so, and, and for those people that know King Lear, what he does at the start of the play is the problem. He kind of walks on stage, cuts his kingdom up into three pieces. And if he didn't do that, none of the rest of the story would have happened. He, he's in a bit of a crazy mood. And what is this crazy mood that he's in? Well, it's identified very early on as being the result of a, uh, a humoral imbalance. And then we have, for example, in Macbeth, uh, there is the moment, uh, the famous moment where Lady Macbeth kind of summons demons into her. And one of the things that she asks them to do, she says, come you murdering ministers, make thick my blood. And we kind of read that as just a metaphor as, wow, that's cool. That's cool language. And that kind of, yeah, I guess for some reason that kind of feels like that would be like an angry or an evil thing to do. But she says, make thick my blood and stop up the passage to remorse. And then if you go back and you actually read some old medical humoral books written in the sort of century preceding when Shakespeare is writing that, you'll actually see this is not a metaphor at all. This is exactly what thick blood does. It stops up the passage to remorse. There is a place in our brain that is the place where remorse is kept, you could say, and thick blood will stop up the passage to remorse. So she's asking for not a metaphorical thing. This isn't just cool language. She's asking for a physical thing to happen to her, and she's asking demons to do it. And there was a, a Flemish theologian philosopher called Levinus Lemnius who wrote a lot of this stuff, and he would talk often about the fact that demons, Satan, the devil, was able actually to uh, get into, to inhabit thick blood, to inhabit bile, to inhabit the humors within us. And so mm. she was doing something quite literal. She believes in demons. She believes in the humors. She was asking for literal things to happen. Of course, all of that doesn't undo the, the beauty of the poetry, of the kind of the drama that comes through in the language that Shakespeare's chosen, but she's doing more than just that. She's actually asking for literal things that she really believes in to happen. And then the last one is Timon of Athens, which is not a very well-known story, Timon of Athens, but, and, and not surprisingly, because I don't think it would be that interesting to watch on stage. It certainly doesn't have the drama and the excitement of battle like Macbeth or, or Hamlet or anything like that. And it's not a comedy. It's a, 
it's it's i guess in the sense that we define shakespearean plays by the way that they end it's a tragedy because it does end fairly tragically but certainly not in a big um a, a big battle not not in anything exciting so timon is a guy who's really rich uh and he entertains a bunch of people and he was very generous with his money all the time and then he hits on hard times and he expects people to who to whom he has been generous to be generous with him and long story short they're not he gets very angry about it and starts to despair of humanity in general. And he ends up hating humanity, goes out into the wilderness, uh, digs a hole and buries himself alive. And that's the end of the play. So big spoiler alerts, because I'm sure everyone was just going to rush out there. And read <laughs> about it. But in, but in that there are, there are references to the humors, which are really interesting because what he ends up doing is hating humanity. And uh, in the connection to the medieval sin of acedia, there is a process uh, through which someone goes. So uh, the the kind of the seminal historical survey of Acedia is by this guy called uh, Siegfried Wenzel. And he identified a, uh, a process through which the Acedia sufferer, a sufferer goes through. And, uh, and Timon basically goes uh, note for note over the nine stages of Acedia. Uh, and so there's a humoral connection there as well. So we, we can uh, jump into some of those next week. Uh, if mm. you want to talk to talk about that, uh, and the truth is that it's everywhere. And the more that you understand of it, the more that you can see it at work. And the the combination between the demonic and the physical and the spiritual uh, and the and the mental, it's always there, running all the time. In the early modern time, this was a this was a conflux of often competing and seemingly contradictory ways of understanding ourselves. Uh, but it's always there. And I think that it shows a fuller picture of what it means to be human than some of the disconnected, separated ways of thinking that we have today. Yeah, that's, that's good. And especially because when you, I mean, like as if we, if we view this episode as we've set the stage for, for what is a really deep discussion next one, you know, we've talked about the modern materialist view kind of in brief and the humors and how they kind of contradict that or add some value what, with what we're now missing. Uh, and it all does connect back to, it's good that you've, you've linked in acedia to your, your discussion because, you know, the sin of acedia and it's, it's, so it's a sin and it's sin where from a religious understanding that the spiritual, the physical and the mental all overlap. If you want to have those three distinctions, right? Cause a sin is not just a physical act. It's a spiritual act and it's a mental act. And and it affects all three of those bases. And so, you know, being able to see it through that lens also uh, lends what is more modern terminology or a more modern understanding to this dilemma. And we can actually see that, you know, if you believe in sin now, then you kind of are, there's one area in your worldview where you're conceding that these, these dimensions all overlap. Mm, absolutely. So, and I mean, the interesting thing about Acedia as well uh, is that it was always thought of as a demon. Uh, in medieval and in uh, ancient times as well. And so it brings in this demonic element to it as well. So it really is one of the greatest examples of the conf this, this, this conflux of all of these different competing epistemologies. But, I mean, it is, isn't that awesome as well? Like back, back then, the sins were depicted in such these fiendish uh, embodiments, and it's so terrifying. Uh, whereas now, you know, sin is spoken of as a, you know, sometimes people just reduce it down to an intention or to an act. And it almost in speaking about it in such a, ah, uh, yeah, 
this happened kind of thing. You remove it of that fiendishness, um, which is, yeah, I mean, it's also my favourite artworks are those from Dante's Divine Comedy, the uh, the ones I can't remember. Is a Russian? Uh, Gustav Doré, I think. Gustav Doré, yeah, yeah, yeah. His, his um, illustrations are awesome. awesome. They're just, I mean, William Blake's done some stuff and I mm. look at that and I'm like, there's some really cool ones in here, but there's nowhere near the pool to me because it's not as grotesque in a really fiendish way. Like I, you feel the influence of these, these sins mm. from those. Uh, so mm. that's something interesting and, you know, it's a bit off topic, but it's a cool, a cool um, distinction that you can kind of see happening. Doesn't happen as much nowadays. Not and if all. it does, it's for entertainment purposes in terms of this weird, like flippant, he's a villain and he looks like a villain, mm. but there's not, there's not the real uh, engagement happening there. Mm. But yeah, no, well, thank you for that, uh, that brief look into what we're going to really be getting into next week. Uh, and we'll talk more next week about Macbeth, Timon of Athens and King Lear and the humors. So Sounds good. Thanks, Diff. James again. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, please leave a good review. Maybe rate us on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. Whatever you want to do to support the show is greatly appreciated. Also, as mentioned at the start, keep your eyes peeled for the merch that's going to be coming out because I'm sure a lot of you will like to wear it. That's as much as I'll say because I don't want to get too ahead of myself. But thanks for listening and catch you next time.